Okay, that's actually a good question. That's a good question. I might need you to rephrase the question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Creative Ops, a podcast for creative creative people people. by creative people. This time, the creative person I spoke with was Marcel Price, a.k.a. Fable the Poet. Marcel is most notably known for being Grand Rapids Poet Laureate from 2017 to 2020, just before a previous guest who had been on the show, Kid Kane. A few things you might like to know about Marcel. He's originally from Ypsilanti. Now he lives in Grand Rapids. And he first attempted to become the Poet Laureate in 2014, the term before he actually ended up becoming the Poet Laureate. And when he did become the Poet Laureate in 2017, he was Grand Rapids' first Black Poet Laureate, Grand Rapids' first non-college-educated Poet Laureate, and he was the youngest Poet Laureate on top of all that. Nowadays, you can mostly catch him doing the work he does with the group The The Diatribe. Check them out at thediatribe.org. Right now, their big thing is the 49507 Project, which is the zip code on the south side of Grand Rapids, Michigan. In the 49507 Project, they use public interactive art to highlight the south side and educate the people about gentrification and redlining. This is going to be big in the later half of the interview, talking about redlining and gentrification. So, if you're not sure what gentrification is, I will tell you right now. From the dictionary, folks. Gentrification is the process whereby the character of a poor urban area is changed by wealthier people moving in, improving housing, and attracting new business, typically displacing current inhabitants in the process. And redlining, from the dictionary, to refuse a loan or insurance to someone because they live in an area deemed to be a poor financial risk. So Marcel, a.k.a. Fable, is out there using his platform to try to strengthen and educate the community that he lives in. I hope you'll consider joining him in doing that through the Diatribe and through the 49507 Project if you're in the city of Grand Rapids. And if you're not anywhere near the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, hopefully there's somebody in your area doing something similar. And if there's not, maybe you can listen to this and find out how to be that change. So without further ado, folks... Here is my interview with Marcel Price, a.k.a. Fable the Poet. That sounds, that sounds like the right way to do it. All right. So um, let's start with a little bit uh, your background. I was uh, telling Gleason when I was walking in that I saw the comic strips that you guys have on the Diatribe site for your mm-hmm. bios, which that's the coolest way to do a bio I've ever seen. But <laughs> you don't strike me as an angry dude which is all a result of finding poetry from, from the, the, the short of it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you take me through kind of like the longer story of how you went from this very angry kid to an uh, inspired artist? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, say that, I'd, I'd say it was a lot of falling on my face. I'd, I'd say it was a lot of falling down. I'd say it was a lot of making mistakes. I would say that for a long time, I was a... I went from being an angry kid to being an angry man uh, and was an angry man and inspired artist at the same time for a long time. And I think that I continued to be an angry man even when uninspired, probably until I learned healthy ways to communicate my feelings or that I was allowed to hold more than just anger that there were other emotions that I could use to convey my feelings that I would be physically and mentally healthier as I learned to hold those things, which would not only make me a better artist and creative uh, and better at expressing myself in turn, making me a better writer as well as a better leader to those people around me. So the, the story on the, on the website for anybody who goes to see it, uh, kind of shows you being this kid who was really angry, just, you know, coming from multiple kinds of abuse at home and finding kids to take it out on. And then a teacher kind of reached out to you and said, hey, you know, I'm going to challenge you to write a piece of creative writing every day. And if you do that, you'll pass the class, right? Yeah, 100%. So how fast did you did you take to it? Did it, did it take a couple days, a couple weeks before you started going like, there's something to this. There's, you know, a, a special way to express myself that I was 
unaware of before this. <laughs> My puppy's crawling all over you. Um, uh, so I, I'd say that I took to it pretty quick. Um, so as you said, I, I grew up in a household that was pretty chaotic, that was pretty violent, that had not only physical but sexual abuse as well. And I I wasn't very good in school. I, I don't necessarily know if those two um, connect as much as it is. I, I didn't feel like school was for me. I was watching a lot of people who look like me get in trouble. I was getting in trouble a lot in school. So I just didn't think that my educators cared about me. Yeah. But when an educator took the time to say, hey, I don't want to fail you if you do this. I'll pass you. I think it really made me think that that educator actually cared. So I was like, you know, why not give this a try? Were you it, really cool with that teacher already? Or did that just kind of like start a whole different thing? Like if I was going to get in a fight in the lunchroom or something, or if I knew I was going to get in trouble or if I was going to make a bad decision, that that might be a teacher who I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go hang out in Miss Whitley's room during lunch. Yeah. Um, so like I, I had a certain level of trust with her. Um, just because she just felt like a really cool teacher, but that took it to a different stratosphere. And when she gave me a good grades for my writing, it made me feel like my writing had value. And when she showed me that she cared about what I had to say, uh, it made me feel like people would care about what I had to say. I mean, it sounded like you were writing essays, poems, song lyrics, just anything that you could to fill out, you know, whatever the required amount was. Was she giving you, oh, hey, you know what, edit this, tr- give this back? Or was it just kind of, cool, keep it coming? No, she, w- she was uh, pretty casual and lenient, which really allowed my inspiration to, to roam free. It were, was, were you the kind of kid that would have taken that and been like, oh, it's just not good then? Or did you, do you feel like you needed that room to just run with it? I think I needed the room to run with it. Because um, school really beats, because I'm a writer too. I write, yeah. I write long shit, <laughs> yeah. novels and, well, I write blogs and stuff for people for money now, but I, I hated writing in school. Mm-hmm. I hated it because I was just always being told like, you did it wrong. Try it mm-hmm. again. You did it wrong. You mm-hmm. did it wrong. Mm-hmm. And when you get told you do something wrong, you, you just try less and you lose the expressiveness part of it. Little boy. <laughs> My dog is, hey, Baldwin, come here. Get down here. Um, uh, I keep begging him on. I shouldn't keep petting him like that. Yeah, I the my for those that don't know, my puppy Baldwin is here. He's a seven month old Doberman, and he has been in the office all day, so he just wants to play. Oh, he's just um, a baby. I've, it's deceiving because he's so big. Yeah, for sure, he's he's a baby for sure. <laughs> but I, I think that I needed that leniency, just because every everything felt like it had so much control to it. And I think being able to to be given that creative freedom made it feel like I had even more agency over it. Like something could be what I wanted it to be. And at that point in my life, I didn't really feel like I had a lot that was mine. So I think all of those things kind of were an amalgamation into being creative freedom, which is what I needed at the time and what I ended up gravitating to for, for years. So at what point did you start thinking of yourself as an artist with, with writing? Like when, cause I mean, it took me, geez, I don't know. Like I, had, I went to school, barely graduated high school, flunked out of college twice. <laughs> then I was in the military for a while and then kind of figured out what I wanted to do. And I started writing a lot on my own and reading a lot and was like, I just want to, you know, go and study literature when I get my free education when this is all done. But you know, that wasn't until my twenties that I started getting really into it and probably closer to my thirties before I was like, I'm an artist. I'm Mm. a writer. That's who I am. Mm. I I identified as being an artist pretty early after I was inspired by this teacher. She sent me to this camp called the King Chavez parks camp, which was a, a college readiness camp for black and Brown kids that grew up on the East side of Michigan and oh that's right because you're not originally from over here from ypsilanti yep surrounding area yep in in ipsy okay so um i i never really saw myself as i never saw going to school as an option Mm. that just didn't seem realistic or feasible so i i think i'm gonna take that bone away (laughs) sorry my friend i will but when i went to this king chavez parks camp there was a, a poetry class a creative writing class ran by spoken word artists who were rooted in Ann Arbor at the time. 
in University of Michigan was kind of like a stone's throw away, but it, it was like an interesting thing because nobody felt like U of M was theirs, even though you cheered for them because none of us would ever make it into U of M. But I, I say that to say uh, these artists did inspire me and these artists made me believe that I was an artist because I was writing. So I think as soon as I left that camp, we had a final reading at the end of the KCP camp where everybody showed what they learned and their talents. And I did spoken word. And and after that, people were like, were like oh, and right after that, our, our school did like a talent show. And I and I took what I learned there and did this talent show. And I remember all my peers like screaming and getting so hyped and be like, oh, man, sells a poet. Oh, da, 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 da. Like getting super excited. And I think in that moment, I was like, man, that feeling is what I want. That's what I want. Were you, even at that time, was it very performative? Because, I mean, your your performance is as strong as the poetry itself. You know what I mean? Is, is that something that came early or developed later on and you were just kind of more about, like, the, the words early? I think at the time, I, I was writing what I was really passionate about. So I, w- I was speaking with a lot of conviction and and. It was coming from the heart. So I, I'd say that. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean to say performative yeah, in like, yeah. it's, it's not real, the energy yeah. that's coming out of you, but you definitely don't hold any of it back either. And you really put it on display, arms out, you know, impassioned. Yeah. I, I think the, the only reason I rearticulated that is just because I, I don't know if it many times in my life or career did I look at what I was doing as performance. Like I understand that spoken word is a performing art. But I, I don't know if I ever identified myself as a performer. So if you um, don't feel like you're performing, what does it feel like to you when there's all eyes on you quiet and you're about there just taking a breath and going right before that word? What is it? What What's that emotion in your head? Do you see the people? Do you just kind of get lost in, in your idea or what? I guess I see it more as storytelling, but I see it is I see it as freedom. It's getting it's getting free is what it is it's it's being present it's being radically vulnerable and letting things go where they go i'm the kind of person who likes to write things by hand you know think about it a little bit but write it all by hand look at it Maybe type it out and then kind of rework it from there. Yeah. Are you the kind of person who likes to write things down, look at it a little bit? Or do you like to hold things in your head until you feel like this is ready? Then you write it down. What's uh, what's it like for you? I, I think when I started, I, I wrote everything down. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have tablets and we didn't have <laughs> like portable computers like that. So, I mean, we, we wrote everything because you had to. Yeah. But I think for a while I was like, I only write in a wide rule wire bound notebooks. That's the only thing I write in with these pens. Um, yeah, some, I, everybody's got their thing yeah. right i like legal pads some people yeah. love those uh composition pads yeah. with like the tape spine yeah. some people love the spiral yeah. so i i think that was my thing for a long time i think as smartphones came out and started to bloom that it just became a real convenience mm. to write in my phone it was always with me if i was at work if i was uh taking a smoke break back when i used to smoke cigarettes it's like you were outside you had your phone in your hand it was easy it was accessible then there was times where for a long time I, I wrote on my computer. I would go to coffee shops, put on headphones and just like chisel away in my computer. You you never got distracted by your computer anytime it get put up a line that was like, well, this word's not spelled right. No, just because I never really paid attention to that. Like I never really. I would always want to go right to editing while I was still mid-creation. You know yeah, what I mean? I, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I, for a majority of my life, I, I wasn't very good at spelling. Again, I wasn't very good at school. So it's like I, I didn't really give it. A second thought, if there was a, a red squiggle or a blue squiggle, I, I I was more of just like, it's gonna be what I want it to be and what I want to what I want to say. And when I print it out, it's gonna look how I want it to look, and it's gonna sound how I talk. and And you're gonna see how I think, and you might see how I was educated by reading that, and that's all a part of it. So, how long will you work on? Because I mean, for people that don't know, and I'm sure I will have already said it in the intro. You were the poet laureate, which means you're going to have to do some writing on demand for people for specific things, right? Like they'll say, hey, we're going to be doing this thing. We need you, need you to write a poem that embodies the spirit of this person or this whatever. What When, when you get an I, a project, we'll call it. Yeah. When you get a project like that, are you the kind of person that will 
take all their time, start early? Do you kind of like to force yourself into the corner and work, 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 work right up until the deadline? Or uh, how are you when it comes to managing your time like that? Yeah, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty anxious human being. So I, I think that the way I work in all things is I do things immediately. Yeah. Um, so the are you sec- the finish early guy or work that whole time? Oh out? yeah. I'm a finish early guy because then when I get it early, I have so much more time and I am somebody who's like really particular about time mm. and is hyper efficient in a lot of things I do. So the faster I get something done, the faster I start something else. And then I'm constantly having multiple plates spinning. Um, so I, I always start right away. I always dive into it and I work tirelessly on it until it's done, which normally is pretty quick. So I, I yeah, I, I definitely dive in early. But I would say that whenever commissions come in, I'm not somebody who just takes work for the sake of taking work like right. a lot of artists do. If a lot of artists are like, oh, hey, come play at Bill's hot dog joint. We'll pay you $50 and give you some corn chips or something like. And think I, of the exposure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, even, exposure. even when I was super poor, you know, I, I just, I can't do that. Like, it's, it's, it means something different to me. So I'm, I'm really particular about where I speak and how I speak. I'm really comfortable turning down gigs. Like. From the get-go, not just before you were a desired, sought-after guy. Yeah. Who, with the office and the, yeah, 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 it's it's like you, yeah, you, yeah, you, I had to, you know, I, I think that if you start doing a bunch of stuff that you don't want to do with something that you love, then you start to hate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've talked to musicians, said the same thing too. It's like people ask us to come play this place or come do this place, and you know, our instinct is like, yeah, let's do it. But then you got to be like, no, man, we can't. Yeah, <laughs> we we got to hold like a certain standard. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, people just won't take you serious. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's all make believe at the end of the day, but it's like, how are you going to hold yourself if yeah. you're, if you're speaking at the spot? I remember one time when we were looking for our perfect venue to start doing like a weekly show, there was this sports bar out in Kenwood that was going to pay us really good money to come out every week. And the owner called us out and was like, Hey, just come out and see what the vibe is and test it out. See what you think. And everybody was just so loud and so talking. And I, I remember being so upset that I like literally like tears started forming in my eyes. And I was huh. just like, this can't be how it is like yeah. to, to, to have so few people care about what you're saying yeah. and to put all of you out there to where you care so much just to be ignored. Like that, that just seems so counterproductive. And I think that that was like one of the first moments that I was just, no, it, it matters where I speak yeah. and, and who I speak for. It's kind of progressive though, because you don't think sports bar poetry, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they yeah, they're trying to mix it up for sure. But I think again, it, it makes it really hard too. Grand Rapids is a really complex city. There's a lot of the money that is real quick to to go to you as a creative is money that you don't want to take. It's the money. It's the money that's uh, gutting public education. It's the money that's gentrifying our neighborhoods. So I think also it was like a lot of learning because like as I was turning down gigs. Because, oh, it doesn't pay enough or, oh, it's in the wrong spot. I started to then learn how things worked and then it was turning down gigs because it's like, oh, I can't attach my name to that because you're against what I'm even trying to dream. Right, right. So it it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And I think that the popularity came with the the righteousness what you stand for um and and how you move and how you think and that's where a lot of the rest of it came with too so i became poet laureate in 2017 and i was 2017 to 2020 and that wasn't the first time that i threw my hat in the ring i think the first time that i threw my hat in the ring was when lou clatt the guy before me became poet laureate. So I actually first tried to throw my hat in the ring in 2014 and I never got an email back, which I thought was personal. I took his personal. I now understand that it wasn't personal. It was just oversight and poor organizing. Mm -hmm. But at the time it it put a fire inside me. It was like, man, did they feel like I was so underqualified? Because then I start looking into everybody who was poet laureate. And again, they're all, college educated they're all white they're all older they're all these series of publications and books and i'm like man is that what i need to do so i run to publish a book and i get a book out and i'm like dang i didn't even know that so that fire 
lit something inside of me and led to so many other things. And I was like, well, I don't want to have 87 chat books out that nobody reads. But you know what I do want to do? Touch 87 stages. So let me let me do a poetry tour. And instead of me listing these accolades of publications of poems that nobody read in journals that nobody cares about, what if I visit every dope stage in the country? What if what if what if that is what I put on my CV when I when I turn in my next application for poet laureate? Um, what if, what if instead of speaking in college universities and classrooms, what if I'm talking to young people and talking to kids, but more importantly, I'm somebody who always is, I'm thinking about not only the next move, but like years in advance. Like I'm somebody who always, even though I know tomorrow isn't promised, I'm always thinking three years, four years in advance. Like, what am I doing then? And what am I doing now that's leading me to this point? And we were doing a significant amount of work in schools, but I knew that if I could become poet laureate that it would legitimize what we're doing with young people and that that would be the catalyst and the nudge that if I wanted to turn it into a nonprofit organization, that would be a key that I could use to unlock so many doors that I felt like I had been pounding on for so long. And with the the wisdom and the insight of the people around me, the the mentors that I had that would soon become our board, that maybe that could be something that could grow and really get us to where I was dreaming and thinking that we could get to. And lo and behold, it did. I became Poet Laureate. We started our nonprofit organization. Uh, it started as a... Hold on a second, hold on a second. Yeah. I, I gotta yeah, yeah, you back yeah. up just a little yeah. bit. When you became Poet Laureate, yeah. was there a big party at Marcel's house that night? Or was it like straight to, how am I going to do this? Yeah, so when I became Poet Laureate, I... Uh, was still drinking at the time and still smoking. So I'm sure I partied about it. I'm sure I, I celebrated very hard <laughs> uh, to where I didn't remember, which is why I don't remember how I celebrated uh, being Poet Laureate. Um, I uh, I think at that time, I, I've always been I've always been a workaholic. I've always been really relentless with how I work. Like there might be more talented artists in the world than me, but there's not going to be anybody who ever works harder than me. Like that's just not going to be the case. Mm. But for for the longest time, I wasn't working smart. I wasn't working efficient. I I thought I was doing what was right, but because there was no blueprint, I was just burning myself out doing what I thought were the right next steps, and it was just really counterproductive and a waste of time. So I think that what I started doing as soon as I became Poet Laureate was working hard, which in some ways would lay a foundation to where we are now, but in some ways was just a bunch of uh, counterproductive shots into the dark that ended up kind of being seeds that landed and grew later, um, but I didn't necessarily know how they would grow. What the world might have seen externally... Man, this guy's on the news all the time. This, this guy is trying to soak up every single press opportunity that he can get to. This guy... Were people coming at you like that? Well, no, but I, I, I think that for a long time, I, I would read Facebook comments. For a long time, I'd read YouTube comments. Oh, for a long good, time, that's I good would for like, your mental health. Yeah, real good. <laughs> um, so I, I, here and there, I'd be like, oh, man, are people done talking about him yet? You know, like, but it was all, it's all really intentional. Like, uh, again, like if you listen to the things that are said in the news stories and what I said and what I was talking about, a lot of it is manifesting. A lot of it is, man, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're trying to do. This is where we want to be. This is who we want to work with. It was a lot of seed planting yeah. um, that when people read it and whoever read it, it ended up being, you know, the foundation that we that we blew, that we grew everything on. I'm glad that you said that too, manifesting, because I've had, I think, at least the last three, four people that I've had on all talked about that, too. Like, you know, you have to. It's almost like a magic. You know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. Some people use manifesting and they talk about magic, but some people talk about it, and at least that's the way I talk about it, is almost you think something hard enough and want it bad enough and, you know, follow through on the steps. Mm -hmm. And those things that you, you focus on just kind of start to happen. Mm -hmm. 100%. I, I'd, I'd say that it is magic in the sense that, let's say we're talking about sleight of hand. I mean, if you believe it to be real enough, then it's real, you know? <laughs> it's, it's like that's uh, that's what it is with manifesting. I mean, there was a lot of things that we were saying that, I don't know how it would have ever came together, but we said it and I felt that it was real for so long yeah. that eventually it became real. And and I think that's what manifesting is about. Like you said, believing it enough and saying it enough, but also working and figuring out how you have to. It's putting it so in front of mind to where it's like 
when you're when you're thinking about buying a car or where you wanted your first car, and you're like, man, I really want a red Ford Escort, right? And then next thing you know, when you're driving around town, all you see is red Ford Escorts, right? And <laughs> yeah, it's right. like it's the same thing with this goal. It's like you're you're literally talking about it and seeing it so much to where all you see is this goal, yeah. to where that's where all of your momentum and where all of your energy goes to. So when you had that title and that obligation and those responsibilities added onto what you'd already been doing. Did it change your creative process? Did you have to start writing at a different time? Did you have to be more intentional about sitting down and writing? Um, you know, what, what, uh, what ways, if any, did it change the way that you actually sat down and wrote? Yeah, I would say that it significantly changed my process because before that, I was, I was working nine to five jobs or not even nine to five jobs, second shift jobs, retail jobs. You know, I, I was cramming writing and shows in wherever I could around that and then calling off time from work so that I could do shows or just calling into work so that I could do shows. So my writing process drastically changed because I, I started to become so busy. I started filling a significant amount of my time with meetings that didn't pay. But it was like, it was all conversations, conversations that I needed to have with people who had insight and knowledge that I wanted to have and, and that knew how to get where I wanted to go. Um, and it was just constantly soaking in everything that I was seeing and everything that it was around me. So my writing became secondary. My writing became less of a priority. But fortunately, we live in Michigan. So like when the winter time comes, I'm not driving as much. I'm not doing meetings as much. It wasn't times like the pandemic where you're still able to do them with zoom. It was like, all right, now I'm hibernating. I'm, I'm being a recluse. I'm in the house. So I, I've always done a significant amount of my writing during the winter time. Um, and I do a ton of writing at one time. Um, and then I, throughout the year, Oh man, I need something creative to do. Let me go through and edit. So then later is, is when I dive in and edit, or sometimes I just have this spark of inspiration and then I do it all then. But I would say that I, I've always worked in seasons, but it became a lot more seasonal the busier I got. Yeah. One of the things that um, Kid Kane said about your laureateship was that you you took all the poets in the city under your wing and was like, I'm going to make sure you guys all get paid. Yeah. What was going on before that? And then how did you come in and try to affect change? I mean, so before that... um, not not to knock anybody um, because I understand where they were at, but everybody, it, it was survival of the fittest. Everybody's trying to eat and feed themselves. You know, if somebody gets a really big gig, they're trying to go and do that gig and 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 keep that connection. A lot of the people before me, as far as poet laureates, they didn't do spoken word. They didn't do performance poetry. So nobody was booking them to speak at these nightlifes. And Founders wasn't calling the old poet laureates and saying, hey, come come speak at this event. Like that right. just wasn't happening. New Holland didn't say, oh, let's release a beer for this chapbook author. Right. Like that's just that wasn't. And a they thing. should because they've got a beer called the poet. Right. They do. And, and I and I like them. They work with us often. <laughs> but um think that the way so much of it changes again it's it was something so new and exciting that again media flocked to it like the public flocked to it the public was like finally that's what i think that is right like a majority of people in grand rapids had an idea for what they felt poetry was and what they felt spoken word was and and when it lines up the vision with what you're craving there's like a outpour of pr and buzz about it and, and really just use that momentum and, and wasn't selfish with it. Again, I turned down a lot of gigs, right? That's just how I've always been before I became Poet Laureate. So a lot of places would reach out. So-and-so, insert venue. Oh, hey, we have $150 to pay an artist to speak. Oh, hey, I won't take less than five, but this is a list of six people you should reach out to. Oh, hey, as time went on, well, we're looking for somebody to speak at this venue. We'll pay you five. Oh, well, I won't take less than 1200 So these are people who will do it for five. And over time, places starting to be like, man, we want you to curate. Like, you're creating these spaces. We want you to do this. We want you to book these artists. We want you to do whatever. And then constantly, again, pulling in the people. Um, but also... The, where a lot of artists in Grand Rapids go wrong is a lot of artists don't like see things all the way across the finish line, right? So we're like, all right, if somebody's going to book me to speak, if somebody's going to give me the the money to pour into my friends and my people, then I'm going to bring all the people. I'm going to show them a hell of a time. 
I'm going to show them why it's so worthy investing in and pouring into it. Um, and we're going to deliver to where they're going to want to do it again. And they're going to want to do it again. Um, and when I think a little bit, even before I became poet laureate, there were a lot of people who really relied on social media marketing. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't going to get out and put up posters across the city. They weren't going to hit every coffee shop. They weren't going to hit on every bar. They weren't going to go out to Billy's and staple their flyers and posters up. You know, people were really lazy and just expect people to show up. And again, I'm going to outwork everyone. So it, again, you have all this PR, you have all this buzz, you have all this momentum, and then you're matching it with hard work. Um, and before you know it, there's so many opportunities coming in that you can't do it alone. To where again, you're you're reaching out to your people. Um, you're making sure that people are compensated. You're making sure that people are able to eat off of it. Um, and then things grow and grow and grow and grow. But again, um, realizing that like if one person is lifted up to be laureate, if one person is iconic, and there's no scene, you're not grooming who's next. You're not grooming anybody else to perform. Like people get stale quick. Yeah. Like. If, if I'm popular, popular is it for forever, you know? So it's like, who's next? And are the people who are next have the same mindset to where you're constantly taking care of each other? You're constantly taking care of who's next? Because again, um, if you go to New York, it's not the one poet show, you know? If you go to Philly, it's not the one poet show. If you go to Cali, it's not the one poet show. You need a scene. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that we always knew from doing shows. Like, again, if you're going to do an open mic, it's not going to be the same five artists every week. Nobody likes the same open mic where you go and it's the same six people jamming out every single week. That's whack. Like, how do I get 30 people saying I can do this and getting paid to do this? Yeah. Um, and, and just constantly working to create that. Um, and, and, and that's kind of how I thought. And, and I appreciate kid for for that nod um because that is one thing that i am really passionate about is is paying artists uh and getting a lot of artists paid all the time yeah because it's a (laughs) just from talking to uh you know people that we both know yeah um there are people out there who will uh really try to manipulate artists and if if they don't have you know the experience and or the the confidence or the, the community of people to be like, no, 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 don't take that shit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Then people will just walk all over them. Because I day. think one thing we talked to the kid and I said, like, yeah, there's really no, um, uh, there's no poetry union. So yeah. there's no, like, agreed upon, like, way to treat a, a person. It's more or less what you can get over on them. And there's no artist union. So, yeah. again, if it, if it comes to a band, some people will put a certain level of prestige on a band. Oh, a band is worth $1,000. But when you're a poet, oh, but it's just a poet, you know, it's like, again, it's you're just a comic, you know, oh, you're just like this or that. Like people will try to knock it down. Yeah. Um, and when you're a city like Grand Rapids, where we don't have Quicken Loans, we, we don't have these huge companies like Detroit's have, like Chicago's have that pour so much into art and artists. Mm. Um, again, you're surviving on local economy local bars, local nightlife, local patrons. It's a way different level of work ethic and a way different view of of how you build and how you eat um, and how you even know what to kill, what to eat. I'm going to kind of segue talking about local stuff into the the work that uh, the diatribe is doing right now mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, making people aware of gentrification and trying to, you know, stop the <laughs> that force from rearing its ugly head and just clearing people out of the town. Um, mm-hmm. Was that something that started in your poet laureate ship with the, you know, the, the education and engagement piece? Um, a little bit. I, so I started getting really passionate probably about that time, maybe 2017, maybe a little bit before. So I, I always write a lot about the world around me. Mm-hmm. And I would say that probably around that time was where I wrote this poem called Fall on Gold. And I was living on the west side. I was living on gold. And I was just like walking around the neighborhood, probably high. And I started noticing like, man, they're tearing these houses down. And they would just be like concrete slabs for a while. And I'm like, that's crazy. The more I get involved with things like the nonprofit sector, the more I hear people talking about affordable housing, affordable housing. I'm like, well, why are you tearing down houses there? And the more I start to see like, oh man, there's 
these neighbors next to me, this black family, right? And now they're no longer living there. And then who comes in and these college kids? And I'm like looking around me. And even after that, I was I was writing a poem about like I was watching Wealthy change. Like, again, when I came to Grand Rapids originally 12 years or so ago, we always performed at the East Town Hookah Lounge on Wealthy Street. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and watching Wealthy change over time and not even knowing that before I even came, it was significantly different before that. And I just really started to think like, man, so many people are like, oh, these bars and stuff opening are great. But they don't realize that like by some of these things becoming great, we're literally chasing people out. Yeah. And how naive are we? How how selfish are we to want certain things and be totally oblivious of the people around us or the yeah. lives around us? Or how people's lives are being affected. And the more I started talking about that at nightlife and events, the more certain people, I would just see people go, dang, I didn't even know that. I didn't know what gentrification was. Like, I didn't know we had predominantly Hispanic in black places in Grand Rapids. I never knew, right? I've always been on the West side. I was always in East Town. I was always here, always there. I never knew, right? They never know that, oh, and they have business districts and they're deserted. <laughs> they're ghost towns. like. People, again, they don't know. They're just ignorant to the fact. They just don't know. Um, so I, I started to be like, man, I need to talk about this more, especially because now people are listening, right? But where the diatribes work really started to go as of late. Um, so we, we do a lot of school programming. Before the pandemic, uh, we were working with like 30 schools a year doing after-school programs, workshops, and assemblies. A lot of these assemblies, again, we start with live music. So we pay entertainers, bands, musicians to get up and pay them well to do two songs in front of an entire auditorium of kids. Um, so again, we're finding ways to compensate different people, compensate DJs, compensate rappers, compensate bands, um, exchange hands, break bread with people, um, the same way that people never did it with us. And our programming, again, started to get so popular, like the same way the work that we did with nightlife to where people started to say, man, what else can you teach? Um, so people started to hear us talking about writing about our neighborhoods, writing about our city changing, writing about our communities. And they started to see that so many people were listening. Nonprofits were booking us to speak at their luncheons. And that opened the gates because a nonprofit paying you to speak at a luncheon is significantly more lucrative than Ed's Taco Hut paying you to speak, right? Um, so now we're like, oh man, this is opening a different gate. Now I'm speaking in front of people that have a different access to a different level of capital, a different level of influence, a different level of decision-making. And before we knew it, the Fair Housing Center reached out to us and they were like, Yo, do you think that you could teach kids about gentrification? You could teach them about redlining. Do you think that we could give you the knowledge and the language and the skills and the pieces that we could help you make the curriculum to where we could teach them about how our city is changing? But also teach kids about housing discrimination and how their families might be discriminated against and what they can do to combat it. And then we started working with Elgro about, can we teach people about water rights and how Plaster Creek that goes through the South side is the most contaminated watershed in maybe West Michigan, but it's not contaminated because of the people who live here. It's contaminated because people in the suburbs and people in areas like Rockford dumping in this water white people then poisoning black people inadvertently again being ignorant to the fact of the harm that they're causing so all of this work starts to grow and starts to bubble and before we know it we're at a point where george floyd and brianna taylor are murdered i see grand rapids do something that feels so grand rapids um i i watched them board up a bunch of windows that weren't broken and i watched them do a huge art exhibit and then after the art exhibit comes to life, then put it in the hands of, of these young black and brown creatives, underpay them, uh, and bring a bunch of artists downtown to paint on a bunch of boards. A majority of these artists not looking like the demographics that were murdered, underpay all of these people as a way to bring traction downtown. Yeah. Again, just to show some wokeness. Ag and, and again, it's 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 not even that. Again, so many people don't understand the way that things work here. A majority of downtown is all owned by a very select few people. Yeah, their names are on almost. Um, <laughs> and, and there's development companies that are really shell companies that are owned by these same people. 
So again, you have people scared to go to the investments. So you have the investments say, oh, how can we bring people to our investments? So then the people who have this money then pay these people to say, hey, do this event. But also don't put things like Black Lives Matter on buildings and don't say things that make people feel too uncomfortable or make people think, right? But then people are like, oh, again, Grand Rapids, I don't get paid to do things much, right? This is a cool opportunity. I could leverage this. I might be able to do something. And then you have the news stories, not cover the stories about what these artists actually feel. And then you have a bunch of people come downtown and a bunch of people taking pictures and people are like, oh, you know, we're moving in the right direction, totally oblivious again to the fact uh, of what it was all about in the first place and what it what it really stood for. So we started thinking to ourselves, man, if we were to do a liberated art project, if we were to do uh, an art project for and by us, what would it look like? Where would it exist? We started to think, oh, it exists in our neighborhoods. But what if we began with art programming where we taught these kids about systemic racism? Then we brought in artists to ask these kids, what do you want to see? But more importantly, start to ask these kids, do you feel the city invests in your neighborhood adequately? And what would adequate investment look like to you? And start to document everything that all of these kids say so that we can bring it back to funders and we can bring it back to city officials. But then also then we started doing listening sessions with adults and paying adults to, again, come to the listening session. And then we asked 150 black and brown adults, yo, what do you want to see in your neighborhoods? What do you want to see in your community? Um, also, what do you want to see when it comes to public art? Um, and paid 150 folks to, to share with us what they felt. Um, and then we did seven murals in seven different corners of our neighborhood um, that were all done by black and brown artists on mostly black and brown businesses um, that, again, were a mirror of what these folks heard in the listening sessions from the people. So public art that's generated from the actual public and the people who Those live must here. have been some pretty crazy listening sessions, huh? It was pretty wild. Yeah. Um, the things that you heard, the history that you heard, the things that people love about their neighborhoods. And it, again, if you let the news tell the story, our, the, our neighborhoods are drastically different than what the people who live here feel and think. Um, it, it's just, it was, it was, there was a whole lot of learning done uh, in these listening sessions, but also it turned out to be a huge art project that a lot of people love. Man, art, community art is powerful, powerful stuff. Yeah, it really is. Just, yeah. just to take a, a brick wall or a, an underpass and put art on it. You know what I mean? It, it changes everything about the thing. It gives it life. It gives it, it feeling. And also there's, there's just so many different layers of it. You know, like again, a lot of black owned properties have been owned for a significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't know this, but the 49507, this project is called the 49507 project, but the 49507 has kids that have tested with higher lead levels than people in Flint. But it's not from contaminated water. It's from contaminated soil due to lead paint. So even when we're going through this project, we're testing the walls. And some of these walls are so contaminated with lead that now we needed to pay for abatement to make the walls and make the ground around it healthy enough to even be able to paint on it in the first place. So again, the the project grew to something so much more than public art. Like people see the public art and they're like dope. And when they scan the placards, mm. they're like oh man, this is teaching me about redlining in Grand Rapids. And I'm hearing from the artists talk about what they heard from the people and what they heard from the kids. And I'm watching the business owner tell me about the history of the neighborhood and what they want to see. So it's like, I'm learning from these dynamic black and brown folks. But again, there's so many layers that like brought it even to, to this point um, that hopefully we're going to be able to take that knowledge and take everything that's gained and be able to, to do work again for years and years to come. Um, we're getting pretty close to five o'clock. So you want to start kind of trying to wrap it up? I feel all right. Okay. One of the things that as a white guy who grew up in the suburbs mm -hmm. and live in the suburbs now, mm -hmm. um, I've heard a lot of suburban people in Michigan who talk about uh, people that bring awareness to any kind of any kind of inequality and they start to get like upset. Like, oh, you know. That's if somebody's got a shitty lot in life, it's because they didn't work hard enough or this, that or the other thing and really have kind of a just a misunderstanding of the world outside of the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of trying to present that attitude when I was talking to Kid Kane about some some similar issues. Um, 
And, and I think I didn't present it the right way. And she was like, are you like a racist? I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just kind of coming from, um, from background of, you know, very ignorant people who say things like, oh, well, you know, critical race theory is, and I heard this recently, critical race theory is, um, in one sentence is if you're white, you're bad. Hmm. And, you know, so there's just, people don't take the time to understand things and they just kind of ascribe these, you know, either, well, either somebody else is lazy and that's why they have this thing. Or if we go out of our way to help somebody else, then we're going to lose something. There's that kind of attitude. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What, what would you say if you've got somebody who's got that kind of suburban mindset and, and they're listening right now with an open mind, what, what would you say to, uh, people who just, like you had said earlier, a lot of people just don't know. The news only tells us, you know, scary things about downtown. You yeah. Know? Uh, what, what would your message be to people who are ignorant but willing to listen? Yeah, I, I guess I would say... Um, when people say, well, you know, these programs that you try to help other mm -hmm. people, are, give, it's not fair to help just one certain kind of person mm -hmm. or one group of people or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I guess like... Uh, the the one the one thing that i i would probably say to a lot of people is to lean into the work um and and that's not going to make a lot of sense but i i guess what i mean by that is uh for example we live in west michigan and there have been numerous schools that have discriminated against our teaching artists or that didn't want us to come in because our teaching artists were queer yeah, I, and, I won't name names, but I've had schools yeah. that I've uh, subbed in and yeah. worked in that said, we can't do common reads that have gay characters yeah. in the books. It yeah. would be too upsetting to the parents. Um, and the one one of my most proud moments um, was, here, Baldwin, come here. Come here, puppy. Lay down. Lay down. Um, one of my proudest moments was when that happened, we invited the parents in. We were like, you should have them come to an assembly. Like, just have them come and listen. And we invited an entire church congregation that was really against us working with their school in. I can imagine in, that a West Michigan suburban church congregation. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but at the end of that, they were just like, man, that was powerful. And that's not what I thought it was about at all. Yeah. And it's the same thing when it comes to to unpacking history, right? A lot of people are like, Oh well, critical race theory is just learning about how white people are bad. Yeah. On one hand, if I'm being candid, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people who did racist things in the past were uh, of a certain hue. Yeah, <laughs> but also it's really about learning about these systems and trying to get people to care enough to undo these systems that still exist today. Yeah. Like when we're working with our kids, right? A, a, a lot of them, when we first start working with them, they're like, oh yeah, racism is something my grandma had to deal with. We're like, oh yeah, bet. And we teach them about redlining, right? And how our neighborhoods were quite literally designed to look how they look today. Like the corner of Franklin and Eastern, where some people are like, oh, I would never let my kids walk over there, right? Mm. Um it's been held out from investment until now when the investment is people with enough money buying enough property to put up these three-story, four-story, five-story buildings with apartments in them and all shiny storefronts on the bottom. Yeah. And until they chose to come in with their own private dollars and invest, there was no investment. There was no investment in the houses. Nobody was actually able to own their houses because if you were black or brown, you didn't qualify for a mortgage loan. And this was the one time that was the biggest economic boom in our country's history, the housing market, uh, where so yeah, many people everybody overspend. Right. They're, they're letting so many people's um, not only. Yeah. Now they're letting people overspend. But in the 1930s, if I wanted a house, if I went to the bank, even if I had a decent job, they'd be like, oh, we don't lend to you. So then I was forced to rent. So I got no equity. I didn't end up owning my home. When I then got old, I had no home to hand down to my kids. And that's generational wealth. Yeah. So now you have a significant amount of people 
who never had well-paying jobs, who don't own their homes, who don't have anything to hand down to. And then as time moves on, you have people who are owning their homes and now owning duplexes and handing that down to their kids. And they're getting to the point of where it's, oh, present day. And they have homes that their parents bought for $20,000 that are now selling for $250,000. Um, and again, you have this creation of generational wealth. And due to how things were designed, you had people that were getting left out of it. And then they learned that not even until recently, people could be discriminated against because of their race when it comes to who they rent to or because they're queer or because they have disabilities. Yeah, well, um, I've heard people say that when I when I call in about a place that I'm trying to trying to rent or buy, I'll speak extra white on mm -hmm, the phone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and again, like there's all of these factors that then build up and it's important for people to learn about it because if if they're really like, man, I'm not racist, but it's like, all right, if you're not racist, then learn about it. Right. Yeah. Learn about it and unlearn it. Nobody's trying to say, oh, you're a villain. We're just trying to get you to learn and unlearn this racism. You know, this is really what it's about at the end of the day. I, I recently, well, kind of recently, read a book with uh, with my kids that it was uh, oh called Chained from the Start, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. you, you know what book I'm talking about? Or, uh, I've heard people talk about it, but I haven't read it. Um, yeah, well, and it might've even been the first chapter of that book. They, they say that, uh, you know, it's not enough to not be a racist because I always came from, you know, my parents would say things like, oh, we don't see color. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that book kind of highlights how damaging that is to just kind of like turn an impartial eye to things. But, um, I think that's where a lot of people are coming from is, you know, Hey, I'm not trying to be hateful to anybody, but mm -hmm. you know, they don't think about the like you said all the all the chemicals from their yard that go into the creek and then leak down into downtown and mm -hmm. the the true problems that have been actually created. There's a if you google history of racism in Grand Rapids, there's a a dude that wrote an article about it. He's a college professor somewhere. And uh he talks about how up until the 1970s, there were actually places where people were just like, no, black people can't live here. Oh, yeah. And that that blew my mind because I'm, I'm not a child of the 70s, but I'm close enough that, uh, yeah, people don't realize the, the level of racism that exists, especially if they don't see it all the time. There's in the housing deeds in Alger Heights, it literally says these homes cannot be sold to black people. In the right. deeds. Like, if you look at the deeds to Alger Heights today, it's in the deeds. And again, if you walk through Alger Heights, it's one of the number one housing markets in the entire country, right? And again, when you think about, oh, this is in Grand Rapids. Look at this booming housing market. You drive through a lot of the neighborhood. Who do you see? And then you realize, oh, in the deeds, it says this. That's why a certain demographic don't live here. Yeah. Wow. And then you look at the demographic of Alger Middle School, right? And again, where do those kids come from? And then where does this certain care go from? And then who lives in Alger and where do their kids go, right? And then how is that place resourced? And again, you once you start to look at these things, it's just, again, it's not coincidence. And, it, and yeah. it's people understanding that it's not coincidence and understanding that just as intentionally as it was created, it needs to be undone. Yeah. And and that's and that's really what it's it's about is is understanding that things need to be undone. Yeah. Um and a lot of people are like, "Man, but we're going to lose things." And it's like that's yeah. the idea is that people have this zero sum game like, "Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's not just turn around and give the whole world like it's not giving yeah. up what you have." We're not it's saying give up your everybody, home. Everybody, everybody. Yeah. yeah. We're saying give kids an equal opportunity to education. <laughs> yeah, we're, not we're saying, saying <laughs> we're not saying you have to let the leaders from the black community sleep with your wife. Right. It's just yeah. let us all yeah. enjoy the same things yeah. and not have signs on the side of buildings that say no baggy pants, no right. backwards hats. Right. Yeah. For sure. Speaking of which, in that poem, um that was raised together, right? Mhm. Mm yeah. Uh where you talk about putting on a very successful show making this venue a lot of money mm -hmm. and then not being allowed back inside when you went outside to smoke because they're like sorry we don't essentially basically saying sorry we don't let your kind in here mm -hmm. how did that situation resolve itself 
I, I just chose to never do an event there ever again. But I mean, um, did you get back into the building? Were you like, what the fuck, dude? Or did yeah, you, like, I ended up I ended up what? calling somebody who I knew who worked there and was like, hey, you need to call the manager and have the manager come down. And then the manager came down and was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. And the bouncer was like, oh, my uh, my bad. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, OK. <laughs> um, but again, it's so and many. I've, pe- I've, I've heard from several people actually that there's historically been some problems over there i mean and and that's the thing is that i mean there's so many of those stories here like there's so many stories of people being turned away at the door at venues there's so many stories of um people working front of house and somewhere for forever and getting turned over for the manager positions. There's so many stories of who even owns liquor licenses in our city, who, who owns or has the access or opportunity to, to own a spot for nightlife in our city. Again, it's all of it again, isn't a coincidence. And it again is people needing to understand that it's not a coincidence and understanding that working to make things right is going to result in some people giving up opportunities here and there or people collectively coming together to to make people's lives better for the collective good but again people ain't not owning their homes nobody's giving up their homes you know people ain't giving up their cars you know we're not asking for people to donate a significant money of their funds to help people's lives it's just again being concrete and conscious and intentional so that we can make people's lives better because ultimately i think a majority of people in grand rapids i was just a part of all these surveys and listening sessions a majority of people in grand rapids genuinely believe that your neighborhood or your skin color shouldn't be a barrier to success a majority of people in grand rapids believe that yeah but you just wouldn't guess a lot of people believe that vehemently like i've I've seen people getting into tears about it's just not right right what what can we do about it and Mm -hmm. like I don't know. Spread awareness. Like, right. I mean, yeah, spread awareness. Helps, Action. But. Legislation. Yeah. Like, again, uh, critical decisions being made and policymakers being in place that are willing to to make those choices. Yeah. Um, again, it, it's just but going down that route, man. Even when it's stuff, just little stuff in the community about like, hey, you know, regarding the waterways, can you make this change? And you get a form letter. Sorry, citizen. I don't believe this to be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of feel like no matter what you say to a politician, they're going to say, you know, if it's in my best interest, then sure. And it's about people, again, electing the people who stand up for them. Uh, holding uh, people to account on that, yeah. Holding people to account on that and then also getting the people Which who stand up for Which is easier to you. do in a smaller city, too. Way easier. Way easier. People think Grand Rapids is a big city, but just from, you know, doing this podcast, I don't know how many times I've met people like, oh, you know so-and-so? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we just hung out last week. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is a very close-knit mm-hmm. group of uh, creatives. And that's the way that everything works here. That's the way that politics work. That's the way that for-profit businesses work. Like it's all just as tight knit. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 just getting the right people together and the right decision makers to push the right decisions through. Yeah. Have you found that to be easier as you guys go, or harder, or you know, like do you have momentum going now with the diatribe that uh, when you're knocking on people's doors asking for investments or opportunities to speak that uh, it's it's yeah, moving more downhill now. Um, I guess we'll see over time. If if you see arts districts start to come in Grand Rapids and you start to see our neighborhood get zoned to be a multicultural arts district, you'll know that things can be done and change can be made and that you can do it at a grassroots level to to impact that. I would say that again, when these surveys started to come out about redlining, um, a lot of people knew the language. Cause again, you're, you're talking about it so much. You're, you're, you're making it on the forefront so much that again, people are starting to realize and people are starting to listen. If you canvas 5,500 homes, which is what's in our neighborhood, how many of those people are going to tell one person in, in a city with a population of what, 350,000, um, how much can you start to sway and impact the majority um, by continuing to be resilient and get out information again, um, it can be done. Uh, it, it just takes tireless work and resilience. 
Uh, it, but again, I'm somebody who continues to stay in Grand Rapids and live in Grand Rapids because I believe that we can create change here. I believe that we can create the things that we want to see here. I believe that we can make it more of a hub for artists. I believe that more, at least poets and creatives and writers can can live full time off their craft. I believe that we can create in ways that will push developers to think different, that will push investors to think different. I believe that we can make neighborhoods better without displacing people. Like, And again, uh, I believe that we can be an example of how we do it as we continue to to make steps as we continue to to rehab a building and get our physical space i I believe that we can again make it an example to where other people are going to have to be as critical when they make those decisions otherwise people aren't going to vote on passing their projects through uh and again i think it, it just takes the work and a lot of the work that people don't see but i think that we can do it so people who say how can i help whether they live in the city or in its surrounding areas. Marcel, what can I do? Like today, tomorrow, this week, this month, you know, if somebody wants to give money to somebody, if somebody wants to give time to something, what what would be your kind of beginner's how-to guide to affect change? I'd say that there's a million things that people can do to help. Um, One of the things that people can do uh, that costs no money is to vote um, and get the people that they- Especially on local shit. Especially on local shit. I, I don't I don't I don't care about the national elections. I'm not even talking about national elections. I don't yeah. I, I don't I'm not talking about state elections. I'm talking locally. The way our city works is we have a strong commissioner system, right? What the mayor the mayor's the head, right? At the end of the day, but the mayor's not the head. The commissioners are the head. The commissioners push things through. If you get a bunch of progressive or not I hate words like progressive, because I, I think it Republicans, Democrats are racist. Um, if you get the right city officials in place who actually believe in change, who are willing to make to to take risks, you could change the way that policy works in Grand Rapids. If you get the right city manager hired or get the city manager on the same page as those commissioners to take risks, on a policy level, you can open floodgates for funding. You can do so many different things. If if people want to get involved for free, join a board um, for a nonprofit that invests in communities, steer them in the direction of making the right decisions. Whether you want to join the board for Festival of the Arts and you want to say, you know what? I want 50% of the artists who are booked at Festival of the Arts to be black and brown. Or I want 25% of the artists to be booked to be from the Southeast side or from the Southwest side. You can join that board and you can make that difference. If people join their neighborhood associations, they can say, hey, how do we find out who needs help in our neighborhood and and make sure that they need help or make sure that they're not getting evicted, right? People can do that for free with their time. If people want to give money because they don't have time, they can find organizations that feel righteous. If they search for organizations that are black and brown founded or black, brown, and queer founded and black, brown, and queer led, and if you're looking for one, the diatribe is uh, not a bad one. <laughs> we're, we're one. Um, but I mean, there's there's so many different organizations. Again, like there's a lot of organizations that are multi-million dollars organizations that are founded by people who don't live in these neighborhoods, who don't look like our kids. And they have millions and millions of dollar budgets. And the people who are making great salaries don't live in the neighborhoods and don't look like our kids. Yeah. And again, we need to change that. Grand Rapids is one of the the most the largest philanthropic hubs in the country. If we start to have nonprofit organizations rooted in our neighborhoods that have people working in them from our neighborhoods, that they have good salaries and good benefits, they're going to be able to afford good houses. You know, again, it's, it's about just being intentional every step of the way yeah. and not cutting corners. That's the type of change that needs to be made. Again, it's not telling people in Rockford, yo, you got to sell your house and give it to black people. That's not what it is. Right. Again, I mean, if you really want to, if you right. feel really, really moved by the spirit here, that's radical. <laughs> um, but again, it's just about intentional decisions being made and people joining boards and committees and making intentional decisions. It's about, it's about people joining the planning commission, right? And saying, you know what? We need more black and brown owned businesses in our business districts and, and really making it your, your goal to make that possible, right? Again, people can do the change and create change. They just have to really be intentional about it and give their time and energy to do it. And that's what it's about. Hey man, that sounds like a, 
a pretty good spot to start bringing this thing to an end. Is there anything else you wanted to say uh, about yourself, about the diatribe, any projects, any places where people can check you out? Yeah, if people are wanting to to really see what's on the horizon or they want to know what's on the horizon, uh, Gleason, our director of education, is getting ready to create a comprehensive and inclusive sex ed program uh, that's really going to change the way that people look at sex ed and the way that we've taught sex ed in this outdated way for a century. Um, And that's something that I'm really, really excited about because I think most of the people listening to this can all agree that their sex ed experience wasn't good. Um, And that's the same thing. That's what we're trying to do is we're trying to reinvent education, right? And make it good. I mean, this, this is this, this not to be too irreverent right now, but yeah, I was watching a movie with my daughter who's in middle school Uh and Somebody had a shirt on that said boner donor. Yeah. <laughs> and I started laughing and she goes, what's a boner? I was like, how do you not know what a boner yeah. is? You're in yeah. middle school. <laughs> <sighs> Conversations. Um, but I, I'd say. Uh, other, Sorry, that was, no, that's real. That's real. That's, that's again. The, the, <laughs> the, the, that's the point. If people want to learn about the 49507 project, learn up on it. Uh, go to our website. Go see the art. Go scan the placards. Go see what it's all about. Um, there's not another project that is a public art project that is this intentional as well as interactive that I've seen anywhere in the country. Um, and it's here in Grand Rapids and it's in our neighborhood. Um, so if you're listening and you live on the West side, if you live, uh, on the Northwest side, the North side, the, the West side, come over to the South side and see this project, uh, and see what we're trying to build here. Um, and post about it on social media. That's a, a huge way to help. Um, just post a picture to the mural, tag the artist. Um, but um, I, I guess I'll plant the seed that we're trying to get a space. We're going to have a space soon. Not trying to get a space, but um, in the next couple of years, you'll see what the hard work has really all been building towards come to life. And we're really close and I'm excited to see that. But people getting involved with that is going to be the biggest thing. Because we'll need volunteers, we'll need help, we'll need people to utilize all these amazing services, and it's going to be inspiring. It's going to be dope. But uh, regardless, everybody helped by listening, so thank you for listening. Uh, and if you guys have any questions, go to the diatribe.org, reach out, uh, and we'll be happy to answer them. Awesome. Thank you for uh, doing this. Thank you for letting me pet your dog. <laughs> and um, Marcel, aka Fable the Poet, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, just kidding. They liked us. We can light it up. All right, everybody, thank you for coming out for another Creative Ops. I hope to see you next week and every week thereafter. I really hope you go check out the Diatribe. Look in the show notes. Go check out the Diatribe.org. Look up Fable the Poet on Instagram. Support, follow, and make sure that these people feel all the love, folks. All of it. All of it. All right, see you later. Yeah. <laughs>